This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your hosts, Chris Spear and Andrew Wilkinson. Each week, we'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook and Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. This is episode 14 of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast, From Haiti to the White House. Today we speak with Chef Sebastian, aka Cuisine King, on his thoughts on going to culinary school, vibrational cooking, finding the middle ground between consistency and flexibility when cooking, pop-up dinners and how to make them successful, and cultural appropriation. And thanks once again to Jug Bridge Brewery, located at 911 East Patrick Street in Frederick, Maryland, for giving us a place to record this podcast. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. All right, we're back with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm Andrew. And this is Chris. And we're here today with Chef Sebastian, a.k.a. Cuisine King. That's right, that's right. Thank you for coming out. We appreciate you making the trip. Of course. So uh, I guess we'll just get right into it. From Haiti to the White House. Where where's your story start? Let us know who you are. I was born in Haiti, and then my grandmother, she was a phenomenal cook. And the interesting thing about her, she didn't know how to read or write. But um, she used to work for dignitaries, and she would learn the recipes from watching people. And mm-hmm. she would, she would make it better than they they you know they made it. So she would work for the French, for the Japanese. I remember my mom told me a story one time where she was working for the embassy of Japan and the ambassador's wife never allowed anybody to cook for um, for her husband. Mm-hmm. And then she asked my grandma to cook. And then my grandma cooked one time. And after my grandma cooked, she was like, her husband only wanted food for my grandma. So that's how my grandma ended up losing her job <laughs> because the, um, the, the lady just... She just felt some type of way about it. Uh, so, but yeah, so she she taught me when I was young. She passed away when I was younger, and I actually had no passion in cooking. I didn't want to cook. I didn't care for cooking. I actually wanted to be a pilot. I know this kind of weird, but <laughs> um, and ironically, I got my first job in a restaurant. I just went in. I was looking for a job, and I got as a dishwasher. Mm-hmm. And the next day, somebody called out, and they were like, "Yeah, we need you on the line." And then from there, I progressed. Went to um, the Art Institute and then moved to the area about two years ago and worked in the White House. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's a couple of things I want to comment on there. Mm-hmm. But the first thing I guess I'll get into is the, the Art Institute. Mm-hmm. So you went to Art Institute of Philadelphia, right? Yep, yep. And that was like, so what year did you graduate? 2012. Okay, that was yeah. a few, uh, quite a few years before they they shut down, right? I don't know what's going on with them. I think that they... They had some issues with um, the government, so they changed from a for-profit school to like a non-profit or something. Oh, okay. So they're still around, but they, I don't think they operate in the same capacity that they used to before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know a couple of people who went to the Art Institute of Philadelphia, and they were not very happy with the experience. Um, like for me, honestly, I <laughs> not know, for cooking though. No, I I I could say this: I I wasn't really happy with my experience. But everything that I learned, 
I learned it from the field. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Learning from the field and just uh, being passionate in reading and trying to cook for myself, trying to figure it out. But that's pretty everything that I learned. I learned on the field. And that's something we we got into with other guests. Is you know, is culinary school worth it, or should you get out there and just grind it out in the field? Like, if you could do it over again, would you do it differently? Um, it's 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 kind of funny you asked me that question because I had somebody call me. And their daughter is interested in going to culinary school, and they were like, "What, what should we do? What should we do?" And I just told them, for me, if I was going, if if I were to go back in time, I would not go to culinary school. I would uh, just go somewhere, get a job as a dishwasher. Even if you you don't get hired, just just stash, just just stay there until you you get you know you get you get a job and work there as a dishwasher or peel potatoes or cut onions, and then. Work, but I think the issue that we have now in the next generation is people are not as patient as you know we were. You know, when because mm-hmm. for me, a lot of people don't know this. I took jobs, I staged places where I really wanted to work somewhere in um, back in Jersey because I'm from Jersey. It was a French restaurant, and I really wanted to get the knowledge. And I just went over there and I told the guy, Hey, I do whatever. I'll mop the floors, I'll do whatever, but people are not willing to do that now. You know what I mean? I mean, I see that a lot. I used to work at a place, I had 125 employees, and you'd get kids coming in at 17, and we'd want to train them, and they'd spend the summer, and they'd be doing prep and stuff, and in like two weeks, they want to know why they're not working the line. It's like, man, I didn't work a line for like almost a decade, it feels like, from when I started working in restaurants at 16. And it's crazy, but I totally get that, that whole immediacy of like, okay, I'm tired of doing prep work and cutting vegetables, like, let me get on here and start doing some saute, and they don't realize how much it takes to get to that point. No, but I think too, the the, the thing that I learned is that all those things, you know, it's kind of like going up a step. They're foundational to going to, to saute. You know what I mean? If somebody want to be the best saute cook or the best grill cook, the best place to start is prep because you know everything that goes into the food. You know mm-hmm. everything. You, you already understand You know what it takes to prep the food, to make the food, and I, th- and I think that makes you a better cook. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I've seen people that just come round in line and they don't know what they're doing or they don't understand the food or anything that goes into it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And then they, they aren't able to do the quality control. You know, if you have that knowledge from yeah. before yeah. in the prep, yeah. you, you know what it's supposed to be. And if something's wrong, you can point it out, take it out, whatever. I think the the craziest place I worked at, uh, I worked at the Cheesecake Factory, and that was the most intense and the craziest job I've ever had. And I'm actually, a lot of my skills, a lot of things that I learned, I learned there because... I know the Cheesecake Factory gets a bad rep, but... I heard they move in that kitchen. Listen. We actually, one of our guests last week said they worked there too, and they had a story about it. Listen, the Cheesecake Factory, I've literally seen grown men cry. Like, cry. <laughs> like, <laughs> real tears. Because it's so hard. It's so hard to work over there. It's constantly, there's no... No breaks. There's no breaks. Did it's, you ever work a Mother's Day? That was what the story was about. Mother's Day. I worked on uh, <laughs> New Year's Eve. I worked on what else? Christmas Eve. It, the worst days to work over there was Sundays. Yeah. Because Sundays they have uh, they still have their regular menu and they have the lunch menu. So it's it's the craziest place I've ever worked. Like I've seen uh, the funny story. I was working there one time. So there was a guy. He had just got the job and he was working the flat top. And he literally let his screen build up with like five screens. Like it was one screen and it was five more screens. 
And he told oh the manager, God. I got to go to the bathroom. And he went to the bathroom. He ain't never come and back. And then like 45 minutes passed by. And the guy's like, where is he? And we went to the bathroom. They didn't see him. And then when they looked on the camera, he just grabbed all that stuff and walked out. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious, man. Yeah. He was like, man, I'm not doing this. The Cheesecake Factory, I think anybody that wants to be good at what they do, I think working at the because even when you work on the line, you're still prepping because literally everything is from scratch. Like from, you know, they prep some of the stuff in the back, but everything that you're getting is literally being prepped and made on the line. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So yeah. uh, you get a lot of skill work in there, and, and it, it, it was a it was a tough environment. Yeah. Yeah, not a lot of chefs make it over there. <laughs> you you want to learn yeah. speed work yeah. at the you at the cheesecake factory. You, you learn a lot of. You know, you learn a lot working at a Cheesecake Factory. So the other thing I wanted to touch on about your intro was um, was your grandmother and how she didn't read or write. So all of her recipes were in her head, right? So I just learned a term recently called uh, vibrational cooking. Mm-hmm. Do you know about it? No, I actually. It's basically like you know you. It's it's the same thing. You don't cook off of a recipe. You cook off of feel and taste and just like you mm-hmm. know past knowledge that you have. So you're you're going off vibrations, right? Yeah, I, that's that's where that's my first time hearing that term. But she was, and the thing is now people are telling me, you know, it's basically like your grandmother is kind of living through you now because, mm-hmm. like I said, she passed away when I was like nine or ten. So she had this thing. She was like, you know, they say if 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 a woman wants to get to a man, you gotta get through her stomach. She mm-hmm. was like, she never wanted that. She wanted me to learn how to cook on my own. Um, she would, you know, take me to the market with her. I remember I was cooking, I don't remember this, obviously, but my mom telling me, like, three years old, I would be cooking with her. She would be in the kitchen, I'd be cleaning meats, I'd be assisting her and stuff like that. So, it was like, I guess it was a passion that I had, mm-hmm. but when she passed away, I wanted nothing to do with. And then when I got my first job, I was just like, yeah, it yeah, click, yeah, yeah, she might have passed click. that vibration yeah, on to you. Yeah, and then, but yeah, so she didn't know how to read or write, and she, she was just... From what everybody that knew her is telling me is that she was just amazing and she was the way that she would cook was just because they had people from big chefs from France come and show her techniques and stuff like that recipes obviously she didn't, she couldn't read the recipes but she would go she back and it just make it better mm-hmm. you know what I mean so and I think, like people say, I think I guess she's living through me right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, would you say do you, is that how you cook now? Do you think, or do you run, run off recipes a lot? I don't. I don't like recipes. Mm-hmm. And one thing about recipes, I feel like it doesn't matter what the recipe is. Each person is gonna make it different anyway. Di- different. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. I did a. Um, I was at Star Chefs in New York in October, and I worked. I did a workshop with an Indian chef, mm-hmm. and we we're making a, a sog, like a you know curried spinach. And he wanted every table to work in groups, and he gave us all like a verbal recipe, like put your onions in, put your spinach in, put this in, mm-hmm. and then he said, put up a dish for everyone else to try, and every single one tasted different. And he said, you know, this is homestyle cooking. He said, when you come to my restaurant, the food might not be the same from night to night because there are little minute changes. He said, but like, how interesting is it that I'm up here telling you guys, you got all your meats on the table, it's all the same, saute your onions, now add your pepper, now add your curry, and every single one was a little different. They were all good, but they varied so much, and it was just like based on very little 
minute tweaks to the recipe, mm-hmm. how you caramelize that onion or, you know, the difference between half a teaspoon and three quarters of a teaspoon of curry. Like, you know, it doesn't take much to really change it that much. I like that's what kind of the difference between what you were explaining right there is more. He gave you guys a process rather than a recipe. You know, the recipe would have told you exactly how much of everything to put in. But but the important part about making one dish is the process that you go through. Mm-hmm. Like what these French chefs and stuff were showing your grandmother. She was watching the process. But yeah. she made it better because she was putting in her she her love twist. and her seasoning, you know twist. what I mean, into it with the same processes. And that's really what that's what makes every dish unique, I think. And the, But the process is an important part to keep if you want, you know, like you got to put the onions in first because you're going to get that depth of flavor there. No, I think, um, like you were saying, I think some of the best chefs now – I mean, the new thing now is, you know, home-style cooking. You know, some of the best chefs now, they don't really use recipes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's kind of like everybody's kind of doing it from the feel of their heart. Yeah, but how do you do that in a restaurant where there needs to be some consistency? And also, if you're not there all the time, so you're the executive chef of a restaurant in D.C., mm-hmm. you can't leave it up to your cooks to freestyle that recipe for fried chicken. That So there has to be a little middle ground there. I think that's... I think that's... Uh, it's really hard, but I think what a lot of those chefs are doing is they're literally there all the time, and they have a smaller restaurant, or they have somebody that they've trained up so well that they don't have to be there all the time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I believe in recipes because, like I was talking about the Cheesecake Factory, everything that they do is, you know, recipe, recipes, recipes, recipes. But I also believe. I believe recipes create boundaries and restrictions and stuff yeah. like that. I believe people make the best foods when they don't have restrictions. Or, you know, like you said, put a little onion, a little pepper, a little spinach. I think people have the best uh, results with no boundaries when it comes to cooking. Well, and it depends on what you're doing. I think that's the difference between restaurant cooking and, say, doing private events and pop-ups. Yep. You know, when I was in a restaurant, like we had a crab cake recipe. You didn't deviate from that. Like everyone knew that recipe and we weren't allowing them to freestyle. Mm -hmm. But in my personal business now, I have a different customer every night. When I make a vinaigrette, I probably serve a salad at every event and have a vinaigrette and it's literally different every night. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the sweetener is different. It might go from honey one night, to membrio paste one night. It might be apple cider vinegar one night, sherry vinegar one night. Mm -hmm. So I can do that because my customer's aren't eating there as consistently as maybe going to your favorite restaurant. So that's one of the reasons I like doing what I do is that it can be flexible and change. But I think, I guess that's a little harder in a restaurant. I think it's, I, I agree. I think it's harder, on, especially, you know, when, when you get into chain restaurants, but I think it becomes hard if you have a small, if you have a smaller restaurant, it's easier because you're able to control everything. But if you want to expand, it becomes harder. You're going to have to use recipes. Cause like you said, mm-hmm. if you're not there, you know, it's your name on the line. But even so, I I was at a restaurant a month or so ago in D.C., mm-hmm. and I did the first seating that night. It was a special event they were doing, and I had like the five o'clock. That night, I was looking at dishes on Instagram, and they were actually a little different. And I did see that the dishes I had at five o'clock changed up a little bit at like say the eight o'clock service. And I don't know if that was like, they were kind of in the weeds trying to get that first plates out. My food was delicious. I just think it was interesting. And even looking at the guys next to me, like their plating was a little different. It wasn't exactly the same. So even in, you know, fine dining restaurants in a place like DC, I've seen a little fluctuation in recipes and stuff. Yeah. 
I agree. I think it would be silly to expect anything different than that. Uh, like, if you're at a cheesecake factory, yeah, you want the same thing every time because it's like commercialized. You know what yeah. I mean? But if you're going to a fine dining restaurant or you're or somebody's getting a dinner from you, or you know, like we do, it's artisanal basically. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you go to a, a restaurant in DC, a fine dining restaurant that can't be recreated, really, not really scalable. Because they're doing such fine dining, like it's gonna be some change ups. You know what I mean? Like I change my dough all the time, mm-hmm. and I don't. I didn't never use. I never liked using this word, but um, I was talking to somebody last night, and they were like, "You, you're an artisan. Like you have an artisanal product." And I was kind of cringy a little bit because for some reason I'm averse to that <laughs> word. But she was right though, and it's like it's true, and that's exactly what I do. Once she explained it to me, I was like, "Wow, that it kind of does make sense. Maybe I should be tossing that word around because." That's the whole point of it is an art. You can change it. And like the point of it is that it's beautiful and it's good. Mm-hmm. Not that it's the same all the time, you of know, course. even from hour course, to hour. Of course. I mean, even if you get the the best artists, you know, they don't make the same paintings over and over. You know what I mean? Right. They create an art piece. They create a masterpiece and then they move on to the next one. And I think, mm-hmm. and um, we were talking about this earlier, I think cooking is um, one of the chefs that I worked for in the past. He told me, when you were a chef, you were a physician, you were a rock star, and you were an artist. So mm-hmm. I think those things stuck with me for life. I think once you understand that, you know, it's culinary arts. You know what I mean? It's, it's, an, art, it's an art form. You know what I mean? So did you have, um, I mean, you said you, you started off in the kitchen in the dish, and then you ended up going to art school mm-hmm. for culinary arts, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, did you have a different career direction at any point or like? I mean, you said you wanted to be a pilot, or was that like a dream, or did you start pursuing that? Um, I no, I actually didn't start pursuing that. I it is something that I want to do mm-hmm. because it's, it's one of like my goals that I want to accomplish. I want to fly too. Yeah, but no, I actually just to think about it, I I literally had no no other career path. Mm-hmm. I've been, I remember one time, and one time only, I worked. I left my first job. I worked at a warehouse for like a couple of months, and that was the most miserable time of my life. And I literally quit, and I went back to my to my to to cooking. So um, I've had no other career path, and I've been doing it for as long as I can remember. A lot of times, I ask people what their breaking point is, but if you don't have another career, there no, I, I literally have. You know, I I mean, I could do other things, but I don't have the same joy or passion when right. I'm doing something else. You know, there are plenty of other things that I could do if I want to, but I. I'd rather just just cook. Yeah. Right. It's almost like sometimes we get lucky. You just fall into like yeah. what you're supposed to be doing in the first place, you know? Do you have dreams like of owning a restaurant? You want to own a restaurant or are you trying um, to? I, I, right now, I want to um, focus on uh, doing pop-ups and stuff like that. But I eventually want to own a Michelin star restaurant uh, in D.C. That's one of the reasons I moved out here. But ev- eventually, I want to do that. Not now. I thought I wanted it now, but it's 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 too much now. I have too much going on now. Yeah. Well, so what are you what are you up to? Are you do you have a lot of like uh, catering and private dining? Is that kind of what you um, do? Mostly? I do right now. I'm the executive chef at uh, First Baptist Church in Glen Arden. I know it's a okay. church. It sounds crazy, but we do about ten thousand food related events every year. Wow. So I'm I oversee all of that. So I work there right now. Um, I've get, I've gotten a lot of experience on the uh, administrative side of it because you need that to run a restaurant. I've yeah. had a lot of experience on that aspect. Um, but I also do my own catering 
and you know just been doing pop-ups i did my first one a couple weeks ago so and that was like a um a haiti and nola yeah so inspiration I did, so my thing is i want to do um I, obviously i love my country i love my culture mm-hmm. and i want to explore the history because i love his that's another one of my passion i love history and there's nothing better than history and food together because you need you know food is part of history you know yeah. what i mean so um the the idea of the idea behind the pop-up was to show the importance of haiti to louisiana you know because mm. of the revolution in haiti that helped louisiana become a state and that helped the united states become the united states because Napoleon, the general at the time, wanted to make, wanted to expand France. So basically, Louisiana, Florida, Alabama, all those states were going to be French territories. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It was kind of, it was a pop up. So, and then our food are very similar to. Mm-hmm. So we just did a fusion of both cultures. Did you collab with somebody on that, or was it just you? It was just me. So I want to jump into that a little bit about pop-ups because I'm really interested in that. And we've talked to a lot of people who are doing that. I think, you know, pop-up culture is not quite at peak yet, but we're getting there. So where do you see that going? And, you know, I'm impressed because you sold out your pop-up. I see a lot of people out there who post that they're doing pop-ups and then they're just like hustling for weeks trying to sell tickets. And then two, three days out, they have to cancel them because they don't have the numbers. So what's the secret? Is there a secret? Is there a magic bullet to getting people to come to your pop-up? And how do you do that? I think one of the things that people are not willing to do is um, I learned that from one of my managers back in the day is you got to be willing to lose some money sometimes to make a lot of money. So I've spent a lot of time going around, let people taste my food, and basically kind of having, you know, free pop-ups, just let people sample. So um, the food kind of spoke for itself. And also having to know the right people. And then, you know, it's just in the right timing. It's just, it's just, it's really a science. And sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't. But it's just... It's just so many things to put into factor. And what percentage of the people did you know personally? Like, is the, are these people who know you well and were big time supporters, or I, did you have some strangers who showed up I, too? I want to say about ninety percent of people. I, I did, that day was the first. I was the first time I met them. I've, we've had people from Florida. Uh, we had this guy from Louisiana that came. We had somebody from Virginia, New York, New Jersey. So some of the people I've never, I've never seen them before. You know, I, it was just. It was amazing to me. And how are you marketing? I saw a lot on Instagram. Were there any other places you were marketing? Instagram and Facebook. That was about it. It was just, honestly, it was just a a perfect storm of events. And, and just knowing the right people. And when a couple people showed up, they were like, yeah, I just want you to meet these people. They came all the way from Florida. I was, I was blown away. I was really blown away. So do you have plans to do this on the regular? Yeah, we're actually working on another one right now, next year, for 2020. We're just counting for locations right now. I plan on trying to on trying to do it at least once every two months or every three months because in D.C., they're looking for that. You know what I mean? And I also think, too, another thing about pop-ups, you got to know what the people are looking for in order for you to sell out because if people are looking for a certain thing that you're making you all the way out, you got to know the crowd of where you're at. All right, so this is the deep end. We're going to get into like a pretty much a free-form, open-ended conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a couple topics written down, and we can take it wherever you want to, really. Okay. Uh, so the first thing I wanted to kind of talk about is your relocation to D.C. Mm-hmm. and why you chose D.C. and 
Was there anything specific that brought you around this region? I honestly wanted to go to Dallas, Atlanta, or here. Uh, and I wanted to go to D.C. because uh, D.C. is one of the, I think, highest per capita behind those two other places that I named in black businesses. Mm-hmm. So, And I wanted to come somewhere where there are people like me that, that are doing amazing things, you know what mm-hmm. I mean, that motivates me. So, And I just I applied, and wherever I got the job first, that's where I went. Okay. But, yeah. What was the job you applied for in D.C.? I was working at this, like, a government facility in uh, downtown. Uh, it's it's like a U.S. courts. Mm-hmm. So I, I honestly wanted to come down. So the first job I, I got, I just came. They had to give you clearance for that? I, it, yeah, it was that was the most annoying part. But it was good because it ended up working out because with this clearance, it made it easier for me to work at the White House. That's what I was going to say. Is that yeah. kind of how that happened? You yeah. just kind of, like, yeah, I, I, I Honestly, it just... Because I had, it took so long to get that clearance. It took almost like six, seven months because they were sending letters to all my employers, to my family. Um, I think they even went to. Um, oh no, that's not, that's that's the White House. They actually sent people to interview your your family members or mm-hmm. places you work at you work at before. But um, yeah, it, it, it took a long time, but it actually worked out because it it, it helped me, you know, transition. How long were you at the White House for? I was there for, uh, I think, about seven months. I literally left right before the shutdown. I left. The shutdown happened in December. I think I left, like, early December or late, late, late November. So it was. I was very fortunate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I knew people that worked there. They didn't have a job for, you know, two months. You know what I mean? They didn't mm-hmm. have a paycheck. So. So it was really, really. I was really fortunate. Did um, did you just get a better opportunity, or you were I, I tired actually, of working there, or something? I actually went to work at the place that I work now. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a better opportunity, um, and it was it was better for me for what I wanted to do because mm-hmm. um, I I got to learn a lot more of the administrative stuff, a lot of the back of the house stuff that I already knew. But it's just this is not on that scale because, like I said, we're doing. Ten thousand food related events every year, so it's 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 insane. So that's the next thing I wanted to get into, actually, that I wrote down because um, that kind of piqued my interest when you said it earlier. So you said you're doing like ten thousand events in a year. They do thirty six thousand events a year, but ten thousand of them are food related. So yeah, I, I, I did the math real quick, and I was like, "How many events is ten thousand per year? That's so like twenty set twenty eight events a day." We literally doing, you know, to factor in, you know. Whatever is has food in it is is classified as a food related event. Yeah. So even if they have a break or if they have coffee, it's classified as a food. Okay. Event. True. True. So so we could do like ten or fifteen of those in in one day, mm-hmm. or we could do. I, I just want to put it in context, like the the a convention center in DC, whereas they would flip a room, probably like two times, three times in a week. We're flipping that room like five times in a day and is that all just like is this out of one location is that is that they do 10,000 events or is it multiple they have uh i think three campuses oh okay so so, um some of it is here some of it is there so it's just it's it's, it spreads out but i oversee uh pretty much all that 
they're working on adding a new building that's going to have like a whole event hall where people could do weddings so that's going to be a whole another mm-hmm. yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask next. So this is like these events that you're doing, they could be anywhere from like a meeting between two pastors to like a meeting between uh, the most we do is like five, six people. And then we do like two thousand, three thousand. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it's pretty intense. I wonder. I, I'm curious how big that kitchen is. When they built the kitchen, I don't think they knew that it was going to be this big be for that. Yeah. So our kid, if if you see the kitchen that we have to operate it for the amount of food that we put out, you would just be blown away. What about the walk-in? The walk-in is literally not a (laughs) (laughs) walk-in. You can literally, you go up the ramp, and that's the walk-in. Like, you literally walk in the door and go. We actually just talked to them about expanding because it's too Mm -hmm. small for the amount of events that we do. We did an event where we had to feed, I think, 2,000 people on a Saturday. And on the Friday before, we had to feed, like, 600 people. And mm-hmm. then we had to bring everything over from one campus to another campus. I'm talking about plates, uh, glassware, Jeez. knives, everything. Yeah. We had to bring it over to one campus the next day, the same day. So I was literally working for, like, 15, 16 hours that day. So you come to work at 5, and then when everything is done, you got to literally transport everything over to the next building for mm-hmm. the next day. So it's, it's pretty crazy. But it's a great experience. Right now, I have two cooks, and I think they're, we're looking to hire, like, two more cooks. But that that that's that's all that's all I've had since I've been there. And then we got to, yeah, it's crazy. So it's three of you doing all those events. I mean, do you have, like, any we support have, staff when have, the events actually happen and stuff? Do, like... They set up the room. Yeah, and yeah. Do like the coffee and stuff like that. We'll have to worry about that. But even them, there it's it's like four of them, because you know it's a nonprofit. So mm-hmm. I think for me, it's just great experience for me. Like when I want, because right now I can work anywhere for the experience that I gained from with the limited staff that I had. I could literally work yeah. anywhere. If I could do what I do over there with the limited staff, if I have somewhere where I have. I could have staff, you know. I'll be really, and, and we're, we're actually really successful. We do, mm-hmm. we do great. It's crazy, but it sounds crazy. And I'm wondering if, like, did you, did you just come in as the executive chef? Did you work there no, I under just, somebody for a while? I, I, I actually just applied and and I got hired. But, so but I don't know what I signed up for. Right. <laughs> it's like a, it seems like a really big uh some big shoes to fill. Like how did do you get any feedback on how you compare to like the last person? It seems like you're doing a good I, job. I, I got I got I got a lot of good feedback, but I'm always I always want to be better every yeah. day at what I do. But I've gotten a lot of positive feedback cuz I know one of the biggest things for me when I walked in the door was the food was bad, nobody wanted the food. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I did was I was cooking every day for my first two months there. And I was doing samples. Let everybody tell you, this is what we're going to have on the menu. This is what we're doing. And I know I have a Brussels sprout recipe. And I have this guy. We actually made a bet because he's like, I never hate Brussels sprouts. I hate Brussels sprouts. When my mom used to feed them to me, I used to put them in my pockets and throw them out the door. <laughs> so I was like, I promise you I can get you to eat Brussels sprouts. He's like, never. So I made these Brussels sprouts. And then he tried it. He was like, "What do you have in these things?" And he's like, "Nah, I'm still not a fan." And he left. It came back. It grabbed like three more plates of Brussels sprouts. So 
Like, if you go over there, you say Sebastian, everybody's going to say Brussels sprouts because they literally asking for it every single day. You know what I mean? So I think I'm doing a good job. Uh, but I'm, like I said, I always have room to, for improvement to do better. It's a lot for it doesn't matter your background for, for somebody to handle because it's it's a lot of moving pieces. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and if you're not strong up here, you lose your mind because it's a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you just talking about how many events you're doing a day is kind of overwhelming to me. With yeah. three with three people too to just yeah. cook all that food, that's a lot. When you started working there, is that kind of? I mean, when at what point did you? Decide you wanted to do your own thing, like pop-ups and, and personal chefing I, on the side. I was side. actually doing catering before I came out here. I was doing catering in Jersey, so I have, like, a following in Jersey, uh, Philadelphia. So I was doing catering over there before I even came over here. So mm-hmm. uh, I was telling him, you know, my first, the first event that I did, I did it at my house. I had, you know, it was a wedding for 150 people. All I had was the four burners and the oven. You know, at first I was like, yeah, I can do this. And then when, as the day got closer, I was like, man, I don't know how I'm going to do this. So from there, I just kind of progressed and been doing events. But I've been doing events before I came. Mm-hmm. Uh, over, I, I've never done pop-ups, but I've done, like, weddings and all that, all types of other stuff. Was it an uh, easy transition to get, like, a market and a following out here? I mean, I know you said you moved to D.C. kind of for that reason, but... Uh, honestly, when I moved out here, I was just... Trying to get on every group chat, mm-hmm. every get in contact with everybody on Instagram, and then from there just um, hosting them at my house, just do a little free tasting, and uh, go somewhere else do a little free tasting. So that's where I start. That's when I started building my following out here. So you're still consistently doing that, like engaging with people on Instagram or on social media and trying to build a following. Is it yeah, an ongoing yeah. process? Yeah, I, I do that. I do that uh, every day, and uh, you know when I when I leave here. I'm always I'm always cooking. When I leave here, I will cook and you know take pictures and stuff like that. And that's one of the reasons wh- why I started to get out there because I was cooking and taking pictures and stuff like that. One of the reasons why I I got a big platform is because there's a big uh, page in my community in the Haitian community. And then I started making food and people started tagging them and they have a huge following. And they started posting my my food all the time and. You know, they're like, he's in Washington, D.C., and then people would just start following me like crazy. Like, I remember at one time they posted my my food. Um, the next day I had, like, 300 more followers. So it's just like, and I think I've been, been consistent with posting and stuff like that. And other pages and other people repost my my uh, my food. And that, that's been able to get me a lot more, you know, a bigger crowd, a bigger audience. I see a lot of success with people drilling kind of deep into a community and a niche. Um, would you say I, it sounds like that's it, you know, kind of finding your crowd and just kind of getting down with them. It seems like they want to support you. Is that easier in a sense to kind of have a community or a type of food or a background where people are going to be kind of uh, rabid followers? I think uh, the biggest mistake that people mistake that people make is that they try to make food for everybody. You know what I mean? Because you can't, when it comes to food, you know, it doesn't matter. The best chefs, the best chef on TV or off TV, like, it doesn't matter how good their food, whatever they make is, they're not going to get everybody. They're only going to get that specific crowd. So I think if you focus on on your audience, on on who is, you know, your, your, your target or people that are, you find out what, what people like. And I could do other, other food too, but I want to, 
focus on my culture and then bring other cultures into my food. So Asian cuisine with Caribbean cuisine. So I do a lot of of fusion cooking. I hadn't even really thought about asking this, but I'd love to dive into this because I talked to a lot of chefs. So do you have any thoughts on cultural appropriation? You know, so I'm a white guy from New England. Um, What if I got really into Caribbean cooking? Like, what are your thoughts on if if I was true to it, right? And I ate a ton of Caribbean food for three years or so. Like, do I have any right to open up a restaurant cooking Caribbean food as a white guy from New England who didn't grow up uh, eating and cooking that food? I was watching a show on Netflix. There's a chef over there, white guy from Canada. He owns like one of the best Japanese restaurants in Canada. I think, um, but he he did say when he f- tried to open it, he got a lot of backlash. To like you know, you just a white guy, you don't know Japanese food. And he's been able to succeed. I think again, you got to find your audience. People are necessarily not gonna believe in the vision. The more persistent you are in what you're doing, it doesn't matter if uh, I, I think there's a black guy in Brooklyn who owns like a big like. Chinese restaurant you know what I mean I think if you find your your audience and you really focus on your craft if the food is good it doesn't matter if you're a white guy or some some Asian guy making southern food people are gonna come you know what I mean from my perspective it's it's like it's about who who's gonna accept you and who do you want to accept it from you know what I mean so it's I think it's in bad taste if you're gonna open if you're gonna open a Caribbean restaurant it would be in bad taste if everybody who's Caribbean is like, nah, fuck that. And you're just, you know, shame, like shamelessly doing it. But if you know your shit, you did your research, you put in work, you, you know, befriend other chefs and support the community, like, yeah, you, you could still be in the wrong in some people's eyes, but... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm down with it. It just seems like right now we're in kind of peak cancel culture and, and food media right now. It just seems like... There's a lot of days where you read these articles and they just feel like targeting someone and going after them. And, you know, that's one of the big things I'm seeing a lot of is like, you know, some white guy opens a Mexican restaurant and they just kind of want to pile on, even though he's really, you know, been to Mexico. I mean, I think look look at a guy like Rick Bayless in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Like, I think he's doing super traditional Mexican food. You know, Mm -hmm. he takes his staff down to Mexico every year and they go to a different region. I love that. I respect that. There's still people out there who don't think he should be held up as kind of one of the pinnacles of Mexican cooking. And I think that's a shame. But I mean, it's crazy because you have guys that are Asian, you know, doing uh, French, you know, Thomas Keller's not, he's not French. He's making, a, he's doing amazing things at the French Laundry, you know what I mean? I think he's really, and he's really successful. Thomas Keller started where, where there was no cancel culture, you know what I mean? And I think he's built his following to a point now where he doesn't have to worry about that. But I don't know, I, I, I don't really have an answer as far as, you know, the, the cancel culture. I, I just think if you're really good at what you're doing, the people will come. That's what I think too. It's like really, it's about how much you put into it. Are you good at it? And then, do you respect it? Yeah. You know, people can tell when you respect it. You're always gonna have haters, but it's kind of like with me. It's not maybe not as polarized because it's still a European tradition or whatever. But I'm not Italian, but I'm a pizza guy. You know what I mean? But I put my heart and soul into it and learned about pizza and the tradition, and and I do my own thing. I don't follow all the Italian traditions or anything. But you know, it's like. People respect what I do. I go to the pizza expo and everybody thinks I speak Italian and shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give an example of, of how this turned bad one time. Um, there was like a restaurant in Baltimore that opened up. And it was a group of white dudes that opened like a 
I Tiger saw, Style is like yes. a uh, Asian restaurant, Chinese food, yeah. I think, or something. But they were kind of doing it. I mean, they did a lot of things in bad taste, though. Like some of their stuff looked good, and they had a following, but at the same time, they were doing stuff like I don't. They had a sign out front that was like hip hop Asian food. Like, yeah, what does that I, even mean? Yeah, what is that? I, you know I what I mean? That. I saw that. And then they pretty much got canceled and ca- and ran out of Baltimore. Yeah, they got canceled real fast. So you're cool when I open my do my little Haitian pop up restaurant. No hate. I, I mean, one thing I, I'll tell you is that shit better be good. <laughs> <laughs> Haitian people are very, very, very uh, tough critique when it comes to their food. So be ready. <laughs> yeah, I actually have a friend who's Haitian. He was like, he was speaking directly on going to Haiti to see his family, and he was like, we don't even eat anybody's food. Yeah, we it's, eat it's, it's at the home. Like you don't eat food that you don't some somebody you don't know. And then most of the, I mean, most of the stuff when I was growing up, it's like if you wanted to make a chi- chicken, they killed it that day. You know yeah. what I mean? They killed the 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 goat that day. The cow was killed that day. So it's just like we fresh. So, yeah. So a lot of people are not. They're not gonna eat nobody else's food. So I think the Haitian culture is probably the hardest culture to get in. As in, whereas. You know, a black guy could make Chinese food. Nobody's gonna say anything, but I think the Haitian culture is is just is just really hard for anybody else. It's a lot of questions to be answered. Yeah, it's tough because because (laughs) from the Haitian community. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because our cuisine is is different because it's it's a mix up of you know four or five different cultures. We have the Native Americans with the Tainos. We have the uh, the Spanish, the French. The Africans, mm-hmm. like most most of the tribes from like different West African countries, and then you have some American too. So it's just like it's a lot of stuff that goes into our food. So that's why people are very very harsh critics when yeah. it comes to Haitian food. You had mentioned one time, I think on Instagram or something, about changing changing the narrative. I'm not sure if it was about Haitian culture or Haitian cuisine in America or what exact could you just elaborate kind of on that and um, what what I mean, narrative are you trying to change my goal I mean right now I think there's a lot of misconception about Haiti and there's a lot of things that people don't know about Haiti you know and I'm, like I said I'm a very big historical person I, you know people some people don't know that Haiti helped Greece get get its independence you know what I mean some people don't know that uh, Napoleon sent a slew of Polish soldiers to Haiti to help them fight the battle and they actually sided with Haiti because they were being oppressed at the time. Mm-hmm. So they sided with Haiti. They were like, we like what you're doing so we're going to side with you. So till this you day... In fact, I did... I read about that one time. So till this day, we have a, we have a big uh, uh, Polish enclave in Haiti and people don't know about it and then we have the Middle Eastern. Middle, that's, that's another big part of our, our cuisine too. A lot of Jewish people from World War II when... Uh, in Germany, they they left Germany and came to Haiti. So all this, there's so many things that people don't know about Haiti, and mm-hmm. I think the narrative is always it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. But there's so much more for people to learn. So that's why I'm so passionate about it to change the narrative, to get people to know, to get people to try Haitian food, to know about the history. Because a lot of the stuff that I research and find out, they're not in the history books. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's wild that one of the poorest. Nations is also like the richest in in resources and culture too. You know what I'm saying? No, I mean there are some places in Haiti right now where um, they have researchers. They have you know gold mines in Haiti. They, they, these are all things that are not exploited. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They have natural gas on the ground. It's just all things that are not exploited. But people don't know about these things. It's just a lot of times people turn on the news and whatever they 
see what the news that's what they were with you know what i mean yeah and and also i wanted to talk about changing the narrative because you know we have a huge political crisis right now you know what i mean so because of that it makes it hard for people to travel back and forth in haiti and stuff like that so uh the goal is since people can't really travel because of what's going on over there why not bring the food to them wherever they are you know what Mm -hmm. i mean so i actually want to take my pop-ups to like different states you know to new york to um to florida and stuff like that to just bring it bring bring it that that experience taste at home yeah yeah so i'm gonna ask you a few questions just answer them as fast as you can i might ask you to elaborate on one and 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 if you want to elaborate you can but uh yeah we just try to do it in a speed in a speedy fashion all right. All right. So, what's your favorite tool in the kitchen? My saute pan. Sorry. <laughs> saute pan. All right. What is your favorite food to eat? Uh, my favorite food is paella. If you had all the money, what's the first position you would hire for help? Just one person or two? It could be two. A sous chef and an assistant. Personal assistant handle all that administrative yeah. stuff? Yeah. I wish I had one of those too. All right. Who's your favorite chef? I really liked Michael Irvine back in the day, but I, I, I don't know. I haven't been really following anybody. Honestly, my favorite chef is people like you guys who are doing, who are literally starting from the bottom and they have no support and stuff like that. So I figure all these guys are TV guys. So honestly, my favorite chef is anybody that started off like me and trying to pursue their dreams. True. Art or science? Kind of like both, but I'm going to say art. That's that vibrational cooking. Yeah. There's definitely an art to that. Yeah. What's your favorite digital tool? My cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> we get that one a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you recommend a book or a podcast? A chef Without Restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> we, get, we get that one a lot, too. <laughs> I may have to take some of these questions off. You need to listen to this. And if you're listening to this, you need to keep listening to this. Um, so what's your favorite culinary resource? Could be like a website or a magazine um, you gain inspiration from. I, I, don't, I don't know if I could say that's my favorite yet, but I haven't used it yet. But it's this thing called Masterclass. I just I just downloaded it, and it just seems so amazing. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to pay for it just to get some more insight and knowledge mm-hmm. and stuff. I've gone through and done a bunch of them, not just the cooking ones. I'm actually really more interested uh, for inspiration and other things. So like the Massimo Batura one's really cool. That guy's amazing. He's awesome. I, I, and one of the nicest guys. I met him probably about eight years ago. I was so impressed with how much respect he talked to me with, mm-hmm. like being a relatively nobody, right? And we were at this chef convention when there's so many awesome chefs that he took time and we had a very long one-on-one conversation. So like I fell in love with that guy from the moment I met him. But uh, him, he and his sous chef um, did the master class and I watched all of them and there's some really cool techniques, but there's so many great different classes on there like Annie Leibovitz photography like I was super inspired um, and I picked up my camera again and started doing a lot more photography after watching her master class on there Um, full disclosure I got a friend who has a pass a yearly pass to watch all of them and he shared his passwords with me so I'm watching every (laughs) single one of them and I'm just like going through like Neil Gaiman how to write sure why not so when I'm like hanging out in the kitchen just cooking doing some very like basic stuff I'll throw on my laptop and open the master class and just like maybe do one that I can listen to not have to watch as much but yeah i highly recommend it. i think the master class is awesome yeah so i can't i don't know if i could really say it's my favorite yet but from what i've kind of gathered so far i really really like it it's the one that you're excited yeah. about so being that you run such a huge operation and you do your own thing on the side how do you decompress 
I love sports. Um, so I watch a lot of sports. I watch a lot of. I like movies too, but only certain type of movies. Like a little weird fact about me, I, I actually want to make movies later on in my life. Mm-hmm. So I like movies and I critique movies, and I already know what's gonna happen before it happens. So I'm the same way. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I absolutely love movies. I understand script and stuff like that. So so movies, sports, and more sports, and then honestly, just I cook to decompress. Like even if I work a long time, I come home. I'm always trying. I only do it because it helps me better my craft. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. So that's good. It's good that you can still find solace in the kitchen yeah. after being in the kitchen for so long. Yeah. A lot of us can't, I think. No, it's 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 hard. Like you know, it's it's like asking somebody who sits in front of a computer all day to come home and sit on the front of the computer for another ten hours. You know what right. I mean? What's well, they say a lot of times? Like you're maybe more successful or happier doing your side hustles a side thing that a lot of times someone's like an accountant and they love photography and that's their hobby and they start doing it on the side and then they love it so much they make it their business and then they actually start hating it because then you have all the stuff that comes along with it being a business and now it's not a passion anymore because it's your job and I mean, and finding that balance of like growing your side hustle to a business and then staying in love with it. It's hard because for me I had to learn that in the early stages because I actually you know I actually kind of didn't like it as much uh, to to, you know, to come home. I didn't want to cook when I, but I also was working somewhere where I wasn't growing, so that kind of added my frustration. So I I wanted nothing to do with cooking, but I think now I'm at a stage in my life where I truly understand that it's not only my passion but my purpose. So it makes it easier for me to just say, hey, I just work twelve hours a day, but I I just want to still go home and practice this to hold my skills. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I still love cooking. I cook to decompress as well. Yeah. What's the best meal you've ever had? When I was, I want to say nine or ten or eleven, I don't remember. My mom made me this dish, but she is never able to recreate this dish ever again. <laughs> she she told me, you know, you might have been dreaming about this dish. Maybe that's not it, because I don't I don't eat meat. I don't eat uh, any kind of meat. I don't eat chicken. I don't eat red meats. But she made at the time I was eating meat, uh, obviously. But she made this dish. I don't know what it was, but it was just a mixture of like everything that you could think of. It, it had ham in there, it had chicken, it had. But it was a rice. Um, but she's never able to recreate it again. That's I think that's probably one of the best dishes I've ever had in my entire life. If if I tell her today, I'm like, can you make that? She's like. That dish is dead. <laughs> this is all I. This is just what I had in the fridge no, at that she, time. And she I, just said, "You know what? It's all in your mind." Yeah. That's what she tells you. Well, do you, do you remember? Did it coincide with anything? Because I think that plays a lot into it. You know, sometimes it's, it's funny because it's funny that you say that because I think that's the reason why I love paella so much. It reminds me of you know what I mean. So, but I didn't know what paella was. At the, I was like ten, so I had no idea what a paella was. So the first time I had paella, I was just like. I was just losing my mind because that was the closest thing to that dish. But she she tells me all the time. I was talking to her probably like last week. She's like, yeah, that dish is dead. But do you remember the day? Was it like a special day or something and she made this? And there, was there anything that like reinforced that meal making it, especially uh, like it was your birthday or something or you just have really fond memories of that day? The like, only thing I remember about that day was that dish, honestly. Mm-hmm. And, and I go back to it all the time. We talk about it all the time. And then she tells me, to this day, she's like, yeah, that dish is in your mind. That dish is dead. 
Sorry to have those food memories. But, you know, and I think I was talking with another chef about that. If you could recreate that, because that's what you're hoping for with customers, right? Mm-hmm. Is like creating that. So how do you create that environment where someone's going to eat that and it connects with them on some level? Like if you don't know these people, how do you create food for them that's going to resonate with them that a couple of years down the road, they're going to say, wow, the best meal I ever had was this. And maybe it's not just the food. Like there's so many other things that... I don't remember who said something, but like, what if it was a, your worst day? Like you had reservations at a restaurant and then you went to work and you got fired and then you still went out to eat that night. Like, is there any way that that's going to be connected that you're going to remember that meal, but have this feeling going into it that like you got fired and it was a terrible day and then you had a dinner at this guy's restaurant. Is there any kind of connection negatively that's going to be associated? I mean, there's nothing you can do about that, but do you think that kind of stuff ties together? No, maybe now that you say that, maybe I need to just sit one day and kind of, because like I said, that was like over 20 years ago. The only thing I can remember about that day was that dish. For me, it was so good, and it was like something that I've never had before. So everything else about the day was kind of pushed to the side. You know what I mean? What do you want to be remembered for? You know, eventually we all going to die, but I want my name to outlive my life. You know, mm-hmm. I want to be able to help out people that were in my position when I was growing up because my mom was a single mom. She was by herself. And I also want people to to know that, you know, it's okay to be a chef, you know what I mean? Because I think, especially in my culture, you know, being Haitian, the top, the top three things you can do is lawyer, engineer, or um, a doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I was fortunate that my mom, she never pushed me that route. She allowed me to choose my you know find my passion and do what what I wanted so yeah I definitely want to you know help out one of the things that that inspires me and that's one chef that I like I like Jose Andres a lot because not not because he's a chef but because of what he's doing I know after the hurricane in Haiti he went he has the world kitchen Mm -hmm. they go wherever there's disaster and they feed people and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and I think I was reading I, I follow his page on Instagram they did like two million bills I think this year or something like that. And that's stuff like that that I want to do. You know what I mean? So I, I, I honestly just want, when I die, you know, people are are going to remember, you know, not not just my name, but I leave something behind a legacy. So just, you know, pulling people up just like I had somebody to pull me up. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hey, being so close to D.C. too. I mean, next time. Um, something happened. I think every time there's like a disaster or something, they're calling people like they need yeah. help in that kitchen. And I think it's based in DC, right? It's based in DC, but they have like kitchens. Like I know they have. So what they do is it's based in DC, but when they go places, they ask for volunteers in that country, and mm-hmm. they also ask for volunteers right. in the US to come that, out that there. With them. So yeah, uh, but yeah, that was something I was thinking about when there's the next time there's something major. Mm-hmm. I knew he was doing it. But I didn't know it was that big. You know what I mean? Yeah. I thought it was just... Because I saw that he went to Haiti. He was teaching them about agriculture and farming and stuff like that. But I thought it was just like, oh, he's doing this, just showing him things. But when I found out that it was this big, I was just... I was sold. So I definitely want to do something like that. But I want to be... I, I, I don't really want to be people to remember me. I just want to leave a legacy behind so that people know, all right, this guy was here. Almost like, rather than being remembered, it's more about uh, affecting a change. I don't care about my name being remembered, because that's the last thing I care about. But I just want to impact day-to-day people, man. That's yeah. that's my biggest that's my biggest goal. And if I don't do that in the end, I've failed because 
that's why I do what I do. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming out today. We appreciate you making the trip. I know you're feeling a little under the weather, so thanks for still coming out and doing this. No doubt. No doubt. And um, yeah, man, we really appreciate it. It's been a great day, great conversation. Let everybody know where they can uh, follow you on Instagram or wherever else. Oh, it's at Cuisine King. That's Cuisine with a K, K-U-I-S-I-N-E, King. You have it. You got to yeah. make sure you're not spitting yeah. out the wrong letters. Yeah. I get it. All right. Make sure you subscribe and like the podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants. And if you have any questions, concerns, comments, or you want to get on the show because you have something good to say, email us at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Or you can email me personally at F-R-E-E-P-Z-A at gmail.com. Or you could just follow him on Instagram and send him an inbox. You could do that too. That's, I mean, that's how I reach out to most people, so... Thanks for listening. Uh, We'll catch you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in sponsoring a show, let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.